Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now before the preaching of your word. We pray that by the Spirit's power and help you would assist us in this work and that you would open it up to us. We pray that he, your Spirit, would be our teacher. We pray that you would help us to understand the Bible more clearly. We pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives in faithful ways. We pray that you would bless preacher and hearer alike and that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the Colossians in chapter 1. We'll read this morning verses 9 through 14, the verses I hope to expound. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. As you're turning there, I want to encourage you to imagine uh, three different churches, three different congregations. And if you're a member here at Emmanuel, Shouldn't be much of a stretch to imagine these three particular churches. I want you to imagine, first of all, a church in Afghanistan, a church that in light of recent events has been forced to go underground in the face of persecution in that very dark and needy land. Uh, they're not able to hold meetings in public in the way that we're holding our meetings this morning. There's all kinds of threats and harassment coming their way from the government, perhaps at times. The church as a church body needs to split up into more fractured groups in order to avoid detection, but they are still seeking to serve the Lord, are still coming under the preaching of His Word, are seeking to love and serve one another, and are seeking to advance Christ's gospel in the world. I want you to think of how you would pray for that congregation. What sorts of petitions would you bring to the Lord for that needy church in the land of Afghanistan? I want you to think secondly of a congregation in Bangkok, uh, this church is supporting at least through prayer and will propose to support through finances, uh, some missions partners that have moved to that needy place, that massive international city uh, known for its worldliness and its sinful decadence and the massive needs facing that part of the world, uh, and also known for a very small, tiny, even microscopic evangelical presence. And here we are praying for a small band of believers who have left from churches in the United States, primarily in the D.C. and Virginia area, and they are going there, with God's help, we hope, to start a new congregation. Small little band of people, they're seeking to reach the city of Mancock with the gospel and to be the kind of church that could raise up other works there and seek to be used of God to evangelize that needy city. They're just beginning to gather for the first time. They're hoping to covenant together as a new church soon. What do we need to pray for the saints at the church there in Bangkok? And then finally, maybe the easiest to imagine, I want you to imagine what we hope is a new church forming in North Atlanta, in part through the ministry of this local church and our brother and sister Zach and Aaron DePrima, as they go out, God willing, to plant the church in uh, Kennesaw in North Atlanta. As they go with perhaps 30 to 40 other core members to start that church, what would we pray for them? What do they most need as they begin to gather and they begin to worship God and as they become a church? They're getting started with all the usual burdens and needs and demands that new churches have, much like this church had five years ago or four and a half years ago when we formed together. What would be the greatest needs that they have and what should we pray for them as they seek to serve God as a new local church in North Atlanta? 
Whatever we would pray for them, I want to encourage us for these three churches and indeed every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed for ourselves here at Emmanuel Church, I want to encourage us to pray these things that the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Colossae. Whatever priorities we might have for ourselves and for the people of God gathering in different churches all over the world and all over our land, these are some of the main burdens we should pray at all times for Christian people. And these are the things Paul prays for the church in Colossae. So please follow along as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Paul says, and so, <clears throat> from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." I hope if you've been under the preaching ministry of this church, the teaching ministry of this church for uh, the last few years, I hope there are certain names uh, that you will hear of other Bible teachers and commentators and men and women who write books who help us to understand and see the Scriptures more clearly. Hopefully, you've heard this name a number of times, and that is the name D.A. Carson. Uh, Don Carson has been a professor of New Testament for many years. He's written so many helpful books and commentaries. Typically, if he has written uh, a commentary on a particular book of the Bible, that is typically the commentary I'm going to recommend first, someone who asked me for a commentary on a particular book. This morning, I bring Dr. Carson up because my outline this morning is taken almost precisely from a chapter in one of his books. I have the book up here with me, and I would highly commend it to you. The book is called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. And all Dr. Carson does in this book is he evaluates many of the prayers of the Apostle Paul contained typically in his letters and seeks to detect and to extract from those prayers particular priorities the Apostle Paul had under the inspiration of God's Spirit for the churches that he was planting and serving and writing letters to. And there's a chapter in that book on this particular prayer in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And as I read that chapter in preparation for this sermon, I could not improve on his outline. So I hope the sermon is edifying and a blessing, but I would also encourage you to consider getting that book and reading his excellent chapter on this prayer. But I, I thought it would be good to attribute to him uh, these, these headings that he has supplied in his book. The first point, we have three points this morning. The first point uh, with which I want to expound the passage using Dr. Carson's very helpful outline is this. First petition, Paul asked God to fill believers with the knowledge of His will. Paul asked God to fill believers with the knowledge of His will. You will see this plainly in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul has heard about the Colossian church. Remember, he did not plant that congregation, has never seen them in the flesh. His co-labor Epaphras we think probably planted the church, at least served as a minister among the saints there. He comes back to Paul in prison, 
gives him this glowing report of this church in Colossae. And ever since Paul heard that report, he's not ceased praying for the Colossian Christians. And what are the things that would come to the mind of the apostle, one who had witnessed the risen Christ in a spectacular vision, one who had been set apart by the Holy Spirit and the other apostles and churches to serve the churches in this New Testament age? What would be the priorities, the things that would come to his mind to pray for Christian churches like the one in Colossae, or I would say, a congregation just like ours, meeting here in Winston-Salem. The first we see is that Paul asked God to fill believers with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So I think there's two questions we need to ask here if we're to understand what this, uh, this petition entails. The first question we should ask is, what is meant by the phrase, knowledge of His will? When God pray, or excuse me, when Paul prays that God would fill believers with the knowledge of His, that is God's will, what exactly is He asking God to do? What is He praying for? Well, I do not think that we should believe that Paul here is referring to what could be called the secret will of God. Now, that is to say God's sort of hidden will for our lives that He might reveal only progressively or maybe not at all, His hidden purposes that He's working in our lives. I don't think Paul is thinking here now of so many of the decisions we have to make in life related to maybe who we should marry and what job we're going to take and where we're going to live and things like that. I don't think he's thinking, God has a secret will for all of us and a path He wants each one of us to take. You need to pray that God would reveal that to you, uh, that you would know from, from His will, some revelation, precisely how many children you should have. Uh, or whether or not you should buy this home or that home, or, or whether or not you should take this promotion, or if you should stay in your current role or something like that. I don't think that's principally what Paul means when he speaks about asking that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Rather, I think what the Apostle Paul means is something far more fundamental. Paul's usage of the word will here refers, I think, to God's moral will for our lives. What we could call perhaps his will of precept. His will concerning the moral principles and standards and patterns by which He wants His people to live. So the usage of the word will here would comport with how He uses the word in other passages, like Romans 12, verse 2. There we read this. He writes to the Christians in Rome, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God in Romans 12 too? Well, it's, it's, it's the moral will of God. What is good and acceptable and right in His sight? What is good and acceptable and true and perfect according to His revealed will? We might think also of Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Paul there writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't live in foolishness. Don't live in sin. Understand, though, what the Lord's will is. Walk in a manner that is right. Walk in a manner that is in accord with His precepts, with His revealed will, with how He wants His people to live according to His law, according to the principles and patterns He has laid out for our lives in the Scriptures. Paul is praying that these Christians would grow in their knowledge of God's will in terms of living upright and godly lives in the present age, of following the path of righteousness, the path of godliness. He's praying that these Christians be able to know and discern what is right and what is godly and what is Christ-like and what would bring honor to the Lord. 
That is what Paul prays for these Christians, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's righteous will for how they ought to live, for what they ought to do, uh, for how they ought to walk. But there's a second question we should ask here under this first point. What is meant by the phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you may be filled, verse 9, with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? I think we could translate that little word in, that preposition there, uh, uh, as sort of which consists of, something like this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, consistent with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I think Paul's point is that to live rightly before God and keeping His will requires some measure of wisdom and understanding with respect to how to apply His will, His law, and His precepts to our lives. So we must recognize that the knowledge of God is more than a certain corpus of doctrines or a list of rules. Knowledge of God's will consists in wisdom, spiritual discernment, wisdom which is so often tied in Scripture with how we are to live, how we are to apply the will of God, law of God, and understanding on all kinds at the spiritual level. It's one thing to know the law of God and the commands of Christ. That, of course, is crucial, to know what the precepts are. But it's another thing to know how to work out that law and how to work out His will in particular circumstances and in different seasons of life. We need to know the truth. We need to have a knowledge of His will. And we need to know how to apply the truth in ways suitable to each circumstance. I think that's what Paul's after here. Knowledge of His will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, that we can discern, okay, what does faithfulness to Christ, I know what faithfulness is, what does it look like in this particular instance? So you might think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, I think it's verse 9 or 10, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, we know it's good and right to be a peacemaker. We should be filled with the knowledge of His will that God wants men and women, sons and daughters who are peacemakers and are making peace. But if you labor to be a peacemaker, you know that it's challenging to know precisely in different situations exactly how to work for peace or to labor for peace or to apply that principle, that precept, that we are to be those who work for peace and unity. And so it takes wisdom and understanding to think of how to apply God's will in particular situations, in particular contexts, that we might live in a way pleasing to the Lord. We need to be filled with knowledge of His will that is consistent with spiritual understanding and wisdom. So let me pause now at this point for a word of application. This is Paul's prayer that we would be filled with knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize, all of us who are the Lord's people, that one of the most basic things the Holy Spirit means to do in our lives is to fill us with the knowledge of the will of God to grow us in spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the Spirit's priority for the children of God, which means whatever your priorities, your ambitions, your goals, your resolutions for 2022, this should be one of your priorities as a child of God, that I would grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. What is God's will for your life? Well, part of His will for your life is that He wants you to grow in your knowledge of Him. 
He wants you to grow in your knowledge of His will. He wants His children to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're all to recognize as we look at our lives, this is God's will for me. This is what He wants for me. He wants His children to be informed in their thinking about His will. And He wants their knowledge of His will to increase and expand and enlarge. He does not want His children to remain as babes in the faith. We're to recognize each one of us. I'm to move past elementary things. Maybe that's an overstatement. I am to know the elementary things and then to accumulate more knowledge about deeper things of God. I'm meant to penetrate further into the will of God. I'm meant to understand His will more completely and more accurately. And I'm to accumulate and acquire more wisdom and understanding that I might know how to apply His Word and His will in my life. Christian, this should take up so much of our attention, growing in the knowledge of the Lord's will. You should think at all times, as a Christian, I want to know the Bible better. I want to understand its parts. I want to appreciate how it fits together. I want to grow in discerning God's will for my life as revealed in the Scriptures. We should make it our ambition, by God's help, to grow in knowledge and in wisdom and in understanding that we might know how to live in ways pleasing to God. And just observe, Paul, of course, prays that we are to be filled. That's the verb that's used. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will. I think emphasizing that if we are to make any gains in the area of knowledge of God's will, it's something God Himself must do. We can't just you know, grow by osmosis. God must do something. We're to be filled by Him with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. These things must be given of God. But I do think it's legitimate, and I think Paul would agree, there are certain things that we can do to put ourselves in the pathway of such filling and such blessing. And so I ask you, if you see this priority of God's Spirit through the Apostle Paul of filling you with knowledge and wisdom and understanding, how do you hope to put yourself within the pathway of this filling, this blessing? If you wish to acquire more knowledge and wisdom and understanding with relation to God and His ways, well, I could assure you it will not come apart from regular and consistent intake of God's Word. That would seem to be one of the most obvious ways to pursue knowledge of God's will and to grow and to be filled with wisdom and understanding. We must be regularly coming before the Word of God, privately, individually, perhaps in our devotions day by day, certainly at least in that, but also in the context of Bible studies and in the context of preaching, we must come regularly before the Word of God if we are to expect to acquire knowledge, to grow in wisdom and understanding. Uh, furthermore, I don't think we can expect we're going to experience growth in the knowledge of God apart from prayer, asking that God would give us knowledge and enlarge our understanding of Him and His ways. Solomon prayed for wisdom, right? If any man lacks anything, let him go to God and ask. Are we asking God to fill us with knowledge? Are we asking Him that we might grow in wisdom and understanding? Furthermore, I would not expect that growth in the knowledge of God's will, growth in spiritual wisdom and understanding, is going to occur apart from the regular taking in of the public means of grace. Do you know what that language means when we speak of the means of grace? That's kind of old language. The means of grace are those typical means that God blesses to bring about the furtherance of grace in our lives. 
furtherance of spiritual fruit, furtherance of knowledge of His ways and His wills. We call them the means of grace, and I'm talking now about the public means of grace. The public means of grace are things like assembling to worship God, prayer and Scripture reading and singing, certainly the preaching of the Word of God, being one of the means through which God is pleased to further His grace at work in our lives. Fellowship among the people of God, which is one of the means He uses to help us grow, to help us increase in the knowledge of His will and in wisdom and understanding. These things are what God routinely uses to further His work of grace in our lives. What I wish to emphasize here by way of application is that we need to all recognize God's will for our lives is that we be constantly growing, even being filled with knowledge of the will of God, which means we must grow in our knowledge of the Bible and our knowledge of God and our love of holiness and our pursuit of godliness. I'll just say as an aside, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know the Bible is very negative about Christians who are satisfied with milk, satisfied with only the shallowest notions of who God is and what He has revealed in His Word. We are meant to go deeper with God always, to grow in our knowledge of His will and His ways. We're to do, as J.I. Packer has said, we're to dig deep and we're to dwell deep. Or as C.S. Lewis said, we're meant to go further up and further in in our knowledge of the things of God. It is not God's will that we relish immaturity, that we stay with milk, that we stay with only foggy and shallow notions of His will. We're meant to grow in our knowledge of God, and that should excite us. The knowledge of God is a dynamic thing. It's something that can increase and can burn more brightly. We can always go deeper with God and deeper into His ways. And this is what Paul prays for these Christians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All right, the second point, and I remind you again, I'm borrowing from Dr. Carson. Don't want to be guilty of sermon plagiarism. Number one, Paul asked God to fill believers with the knowledge of His will. Number two, the purpose of Paul's petition is that believers might be utterly pleasing to the Lord Jesus. The purpose of Paul's petition is that believers might be utterly pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, verse 10, or in order that, or for this purpose, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him. Paul recognizes that God's will is not only to save sinners and to bring them to a saving knowledge of His Son, the Lord Jesus, but also to train them to follow faithfully and to walk worthily and to live lives fully pleasing to the Lord. And here again, I just want us to appreciate something so fundamental, very, very basic. If, if you are thinking about following Jesus, or you've recently become a Christian, even if you've been in the Christian a good while, it's good to remind ourselves of this. This is an important principle. The Christian life is meant to be an offering of praise to God. The Christian life is to be lived for the pleasure of God. Christian, do you recognize that God's pleasure 
We could say His joy, His gladness. God's pleasure is the telos of the Christian life. That is to say, it is its goal. It is its end. It is its aim. To bring pleasure to God is the reason you've been saved. And it is the reason you live. And it is the reason you grow in the faith. And it is the reason you'll be in heaven forever. In a sense, the pleasure of God is everything. We exist, and we have been saved by His grace, that we might please Him. His pleasure is the aim of our lives. His pleasure is the reason this church exists. His pleasure is the telos, the end, the aim, the goal of the Christian life. And let me just say, if you misunderstand this, if you get this wrong, it will lead to 10,000 other errors. If you think the horse dragging the cart of the purposes of God primarily is, is your own sense of your own happiness, I'm telling you, 10,000 other errors will follow. What is dragging the cart of our lives and of the cause of the church and all the works of providence and the direction of the entire cosmos is the glory, the majesty, and the pleasure of God. Now, wonderfully, for those of us who, of those of us who are God's people, there is no conflict between my maximal happiness and joy and the maximizing of the pleasure and glory and majesty of God. Because the greatest joy and happiness that this soul can ever experience is to be in the transcendent, glorious, majestic, pleasurable presence of the God who is. The God who's redeemed us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must recognize the horse dragging the cart of my Christian life is ultimately the pleasure of God, what will please Him, what will honor Him, what will bring Him glory and majesty and honor. And so the goal of your life, Christian, this is part of the Christianity 101 class, the goal of your life is to maximize the pleasure of God through joyful obedience and service to Him, to bring Him glory, to bring Him pleasure. This is everything. Now, we need to be careful with the language here. I, in some sense, according to the Apostle Paul, you, if you are a Christian, can bring pleasure to God, and you can displease the Lord. The Scripture gives us warrant to speak in that way. I can please God. That's, that's a remarkable thing to say. The God who is immutable and unchangeable perfect in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, in some sense, I can bring pleasure to Him, which means also I can do things that would bring displeasure to Him. It's not to say we add anything to His person or His character or His nature or His glory, but there is within each one of us the ability to live lives that either are pleasing to Him or unpleasing to Him, and Paul is praying that we would live lives fully pleasing to the Lord. In marriage, in parenting, in your work, in your involvement in the life of the church, in how you spend your time and your money, in everything, it is all so that we would be fully pleasing to Him. Our conduct, our words, our thoughts, our actions can and do bring pleasure to God. And the reason, Paul says this, the reason we are meant to be filled with the knowledge of His will 
We went growing knowledge, wisdom, discernment, understanding. The reason that we are filled with knowledge is so that we would live lives that are fully pleasing to God. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Whether we are at home or in the body or home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. In all things, this is the goal. This is the aim. We should all think, how can I, as the Lord's child, as a follower of Christ, be more pleasing to God? In what ways can my life become more pleasing to Him? I want to be fully pleasing to Him. His pleasure is my maximal goal. His smile and approval is all my delight. I don't want there to be any mixture of sin or displeasure. How can I live for pleasing Him? And it's important we notice here the crucial link between being filled with knowledge and walking in a manner fully pleasing to God. This is his prayer. He wants them to be filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that they will live lives that are pleasing to God. So we need to see the link there between being filled with knowledge and walking in a way that would please the Lord. I think at least this means that we're not to hunger after knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that we can have fat heads and read theological books and read discernment blogs. We are to be filled with knowledge so that it would affect the way we live. You ought to desire growth in the knowledge of God and His will. But that knowledge is meant to have an impact on your life and the way that you live. Our lives, that is our conduct, our actions, our words, our speech, our thoughts, everything about our lives is to become fully pleasing to God because we're living in accord with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And He's given us insight in how to apply His will to our lives that we might please Him. Again, you see the link between knowledge and right living. We should want to know the truth on a deeper level so that we would live better lives that are more fully pleasing to God, so that we would be more pleasing to His will. This is not a prayer for dead orthodoxy or mere head knowledge that doesn't affect our hearts and our hands. This is a prayer for orthodoxy that produces orthopraxy, a prayer for knowledge that produces love, a prayer for faith that produces works, a prayer for wisdom and understanding that produces lives that are well-pleasing in service to the Lord. So let me say this by way of application. We should be very nervous and skeptical But any kind of growth in so-called knowledge and so-called wisdom that doesn't produce love, that doesn't produce godliness, that doesn't produce self-sacrifice and service, seeking to please the Lord. This is one of the clearest indications that something is amiss in our pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. The pursuit of the knowledge of God's will and growth in wisdom and understanding is meant to produce actual lives that are lived out in ways pleasing to the Lord. To produce love, to produce good works, to produce charity, to produce fruit, that we might honor God in the ways that we live. That is the end of all of our knowledge, that we would live lives that honor the Lord, live lives that are well-pleasing to Him. 2 Timothy 3.16, that famous passage on Scripture, what does it say? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. 
The Scriptures equip us to do right, to live lives pleasing to God. Our growth and increase in the knowledge of the things of God and the knowledge of His will is meant to produce a corresponding increase in our love and service to Him and His kingdom. We are to have lives that are more well-pleasing in service to Christ as our knowledge of His will grows and accumulates. We should be earnest and in every way positive about the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom leading to godliness and Christ-likeness. We should hunger after the kind of knowledge that produces holiness of life. That is true scriptural knowledge leading to a sanctified life. Let me move now to my third and final heading. See, first of all, Paul asked God to fill believers with the knowledge of His will. Secondly, we've seen the purpose of Paul's petition is that believers might be utterly pleasing to the Lord. Thirdly, notice with me, Paul sketches what a life well-pleasing to the Lord looks like. Paul sketches what a life well-pleasing to the Lord looks like. Look with me at verse 10. There are four things here that Paul identifies that sort of create that life that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And then here you have four participles that characterize or sketch or outline the life that is fully pleasing to the Lord. Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, number three, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Number four, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So I just want to highlight each of these four parts, pieces, that comprise that life well-pleasing to the Lord. First we read, we learn that Christians are to bear fruit in every good work. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. First we're to bear fruit in every good work. Now we've been talking about this a lot lately, particularly in our series on the life of Abraham. We have been observing the vital connection between faith and works. I want to again assert this simple biblical maxim. This would also be in the Christianity 101 class. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit. There is no such thing as a person who possesses genuine faith but doesn't have works. We could say there is no such thing as a person who is in actual union with Christ who doesn't bear fruit in obedience to the Lord. That is just not like a thing that exists. There's no such thing as someone in possession of saving faith who doesn't have works. No such thing as a Christian who's been united to Christ who does not bear fruit. If you say to me, I have a pet goldfish, and it walks on four legs, and it barks, and it likes to play fetch. You don't have a goldfish. You have a dog. I say, well, does your goldfish swim, and does it breathe underwater? Well, no, it doesn't. You do not have a goldfish on your hands. Similarly, I think the Scriptures give us warrant to speak in this way. If you have An individual who professes to have saving faith in Christ, professes to be united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
and yet shows no fruit of that attachment to Jesus. Bears no fruit in good works. You do not have a Christian on your hands. Now, what I'm saying is not some form of new legalism or something like that. I'm not saying we're saved by our works. I'm not saying that Christians are those who are sinlessly perfect and never do wrong and never have lapses and never sin against the Lord and act in ways displeasing to His will. What I am saying is that the Bible teaches that every individual Christian will bear fruit in some measure in good works. Christians are to be fruitful in their service to the Lord. This is a matter of definition of what a Christian is. By his or her very nature, they bear fruit in good works. Now, the Bible speaks about Christian fruit in different ways. What exactly does the fruitful Christian life look like? Sometimes the Bible will speak of fruit in terms of particular character traits and virtues that we are to have. You might think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And there we're told these different traits and virtues that Christians are to possess that are the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the ways in which the Bible talks about Christian fruitfulness. But one of the main ways the Bible talks about Christian fruit, and this is the way it speaks about it in our text, is bearing fruit in terms of good works. That is public visible acts of kindness and righteousness that do good to others. To bear fruit in every good work is to give oneself to concrete actions and deeds, behaviors that are in line with the will of God. That can be said to be good deeds or good works. And it's these kinds of things I think Paul is praying for these saints in Colossae. He wants them to live lives that are fully pleasing to God, that they may bear fruit in every good work. That their lives are populated with dozens and hundreds and even thousands of routine deeds and acts of kindness and graciousness and hospitality. And notice, he doesn't limit it to any one particular work. He says bear fruit in every good work. Hospitality. Generosity, service, mercy, sacrifice, encouragement, ministry, prayer, all kinds of works. No kind of good work is to be excluded. The life fully pleasing to the Lord is one in which we bear fruit in good works. Secondly, we learn in terms of the life that is pleasing to the Lord, Christians grow in the knowledge of God. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, Paul's already spoken about the need to be filled with knowledge, and we've talked about what that means. I just want us to observe here briefly something about the nature of this kind of knowledge. We are to be increasing at all times in the knowledge of God. What we learn here is that this kind of knowledge of God is inherently dynamic. It's not static. This is really a wonderful thing. Like, our knowledge of God is not like, okay, here's a textbook with a certain number, hundreds of propositional statements about who God is, and you memorize the textbook and you know God. And the more propositional statements you memorize and the more data and facts you accumulate in your mind, well, that's, that's increasing in the knowledge of God. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I think he's talking about increasing in the knowledge of God like you would increase in your knowledge of any person you know in your acquaintance. Not only do you come to know the data and the facts and the material and the content that is true about them, you also grow with them in terms of your experience with them. You come to understand the different parts of their personality and their being and their nature on a deeper level through growing experience with that individual. 
I think that's what Paul is talking about, that we would increase in our knowledge of God, like living life with God, growing in our experience with God, coming to understand His attributes and His nature in fuller and richer and deeper ways. It really is an exciting thing. Paul is holding this out to us. We can know God better. We can increase in the knowledge of God. Like you, you hopefully, Christian, know God better now than you did 10 years ago. You knew Him better than you knew Him five years ago. You know Him better than you did last year. And you could have the brightest prospects that in 2022, you could increase in your knowledge of the Lord. That's an exciting and bright prospect for Christian people. And this is God's will for us. This is the prayer of the great apostle, that we would live lives fully pleasing to God that are marked by bearing fruit in every good work and increasing evermore in our knowledge of God. And you who were here for... Andy Davis's talk at the Feed My Sheep conference, he talked about this, about what heaven will be like. Constant discoveries, ever-increasing knowledge of who God is, what He is like, and what He has done in history and in time, and what new history He will create in the new heavens and the new earth. It's an exciting prospect, and it's held out for all of the children of God to increase in their knowledge of Him. I need to move on. Number three, What is a life well-pleasing to the Lord? What is the kind of life Paul prays for? He prays, thirdly, that Christians would be strengthened so as to display great endurance and patience. Christians would be strong. They would be strengthened so as to display great endurance and patience. Verse 11, he prays, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This Strength, Paul speaks of, is an inner strength Christians are to pursue, but it's a strength that doesn't originate from within them. They are to be strengthened. Strength is to be given to them, imputed to them, conferred upon them through God's power at work within them. This strength is supplied in order to give needed endurance and patience. It might be helpful at this point to imagine the brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or in Bangkok or in North Atlanta. We can imagine why endurance and patience were needed for these Christians here in Colossae. They needed endurance and patience for their warfare with Satan and with remaining sin. They needed endurance and patience to persevere through opposition and persecution. They needed endurance and patience as they navigated worldly temptations and distractions. They needed endurance and patience to continue holding fast to Christ, believing His promises, trusting Him for His grace through life's challenges. They needed endurance and patience to continue loving others, laboring for the progress of the church, the unity of the church body. In all these things, they needed to be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy. In order to have such endurance and patience, it would require access to a divine storehouse of power that God was ready to supply to them. To live a life fully pleasing to the Lord means being strengthened by God for all endurance and patience. Let me just say this by way of application. Christians, all of us, should aspire to be strong in the Lord. We should want, we should ask, we should beseech God for strength and stability and maturity. There's some Christians that just never seem to move past milk the most fundamental things. And some Christians will even relish their immaturity. It's, it's not a, a noble thing to want to be a weak Christian, a wimpy Christian. Praise God, wimpy Christians will be with us in the kingdom of heaven because they'll be saved by the grace of God. 
But it's not a virtuous thing to say, you know what, I'm going to live in this constant low ebb of weakness and low spiritual vigor. The revealed will of God is that He wants His people to be strong. He wants to give them strength that they might persevere and endure. And I'm not talking about strength in terms of bravado and self-confidence. I'm talking about spiritual maturity and godliness. Christians that are so centered on the Bible and on the gospel and on wisdom and understanding and the precepts of God's Word that they're not constantly vacillating. They're not fickle. They're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Their boat isn't overturned by every distressing circumstance. Brothers and sisters, we should aspire, we should ask God to strengthen us in the inner man and the inner woman that we walk with maturity and stability, that we might have endurance and patience with joy in the Christian life. All right, fourth and finally, the fourth matter that frames the life well-pleasing to God that Paul prays for. He prays that we live lives fully pleasing to the Lord. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. So number four, Christians joyfully give thanks to the Father. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Very simply, Christians who live lives while pleasing to the Lord live lives full of thanksgiving to the Father. So this past week, if you were able to reflect on the gifts God has given you, if you gave thanks to God in your families, in your homes, that's not meant to be the rare exception. It's not meant to be the kind of once a week or once a year thing where we get together and thank God for blessings. This is just the abiding posture and attitude of the child of God, perpetually, unceasingly giving thanks to the Father. One of the clearest marks of a healthy Christian is a Christian who lives with an attitude at all times of thanksgiving for the many blessings that God gives to us. But I want you to recognize here, what are the matters of thanksgiving that Paul focuses on? At all times, these Christians who are to live lives well-pleasing to the Father, they're to give thanks to the Father, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I think verse 13 continues the thought. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What are we thankful for? I was talking to an individual recently who was thinking through this issue of thanksgiving. I'm to be at all times thankful. This person's life is, is not, um, from an outward standpoint, going very well. Because of bad things have befallen this person. And this person said, well, it's a Christian. I, I see lots of other people around me giving thanks. They have much more pleasant circumstances than I have. They have happy, intact families. They have nice houses. They're not in debt. Husband and the wife seem to love each other. The kids are all in good order, doing well in school. I don't have any of that. And so it just strikes me as kind of dissonant that I should be giving thanks at all times. 
Okay, let's just be really, really clear about this. What makes us most thankful to God is not our happy, intact families. It's not paycheck. It's not our full pantries. It's not our most recent vacation or something like that. It's not that we have a comfortable room to meet in with heat and air conditioning. It's not because of the school that we send our kids to or whatever the case may be. The reason we are most thankful to God is that those sins that would make us so ashamed, those sins that would plunge us into hell itself, all the dark textures of wickedness and evil that mark my life and my background, all my sins that are as scarlet, have been washed and made whiter than snow. The reason we are thankful is because through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not going to go to hell. We're not going to receive the just punishment that our sins deserve. What we're thankful for is that God has qualified us for this inheritance of the saints in light. And that, that He has purchased our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and transported us from the realms of darkness and into the realms of His marvelous light. We are thankful that our sins are forgiven. And the rest of that stuff is all gravy. I don't mean to trivialize it. Thankful for the full pantry. Thankful for the pleasant weather at our vacation. Thankful for our families. Thankful most of all that our sins are forgiven, that God has sent His Son into the world that we who were the objects of His great displeasure and His wrath have become the objects of His saving love and grace in Christ. I don't want anyone, if you're visiting this church, if you're a young person here, you've been coming for some time and you've been observing what goes on here, what unites the people in this congregation is not our shared happy circumstances. we got people currently rejoicing and people who are currently weeping. It's not our shared backgrounds. It's not the teams that we root for. It's not that we all send our kids to the same programs or schools or our grandkids to the same places. It's not that we all vacation in the same place. It's not that we all have similar interests and hobbies. What unites this congregation is that in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been saved and have had our sins forgiven. And for that, we give thanks. For for that, we continually cry to the Father, thank you, Lord, that you have covered my sins through the blood of your Son, that you've transported me out of darkness and into light. This is the foundation of who we are as the people of God. This is what unites us, and this is why we continually give thanks to God. My attitude and posture of thanksgiving is not dependent on pleasant circumstances. It's not dependent on my life being everything that I want it to be. It is dependent on God the Father sending His only begotten Son so that I would not perish but have everlasting life. And for that, we can give thanks at all times, and we will give thanks throughout eternity. Well, in closing, let me just say this. This prayer of the apostle, these Colossian Christians would be filled with the knowledge of his word and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They would live lives fully pleasing to the Lord that look like bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of his will giving thanks to God at all times. These are the kinds of prayers we should pray for other Christians. These are the kinds of prayers we should pray for the saints in Afghanistan and in Bangkok and in North Atlanta. It's the kind of prayers we should pray for ourselves. 
So often when Christians get together and they go around the room to share prayer requests, the petitions just never really seem to rise above, you know, pray for my aunt's big toe. You know, it's, it's been bothering her lately. Well, we should pray. I don't mean to trivialize. The Lord is not above the details of your aunt's big toe. We can cast all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. But in terms of the major priorities should govern our prayer lives, we should pray for these things. Lord, I want to grow in knowledge of Your will. Help me to grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's what I need because I want to live a life pleasing to You. Help me to grow in good works. May I increase in the knowledge of You. Help me to be strengthened that I might stand and endure with patience and with joy. And Lord, please give me a disposition of thankfulness at all times for Your work of grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, what could be more appropriate than coming to You now after considering this prayer of the Apostle and praying these things for ourselves as a body of Your people? We do pray that You would help the saints of Emmanuel Church to be filled with the knowledge of Your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Give us more of God, more of the Bible more knowledge of You and Your ways and Your will for our lives. Father, we pray that we would live lives fully pleasing to You. We do say to You that Your pleasure is the end of an aim and goal of our lives. We want to live for Your glory, Your glory alone, and we want to live lives far from bringing displeasure to You, rather that bring pleasure and gladness to You. Help us to live such lives. So we pray that You would help us here to bear fruit in every good work that we would give ourselves to practical acts of kindness and service and charity and love toward one another and toward our neighbors in service to Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to increase in the knowledge of you. We thank you that, that you permit us greater and deeper and fuller access into the knowledge of God more and more as we study your word and as we accumulate experience in walking with God. We all want to know you better. Help us to do that. We pray also, Lord, that you would strengthen us, whatever it is you must supply to make us strong by your mighty power that we might have all endurance and patience with joy. Give this to us. We don't want to be like fragile trees tossed to and fro that split in the wind. We want to be like oak trees that stand and are strong and can endure the influences of this world and the trials and challenges that come for your people. Make us strong and mature and stable as your people, that we might persevere in this crooked generation. Finally, Father, we pray that we would give thanks at all times to you for what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus, that you have united us to him, that you have qualified us for the inheritance that he gives to all those who are his followers. We pray, Father, that you would amaze us and astound us and confound us with the prospects of grace, what you have done in forgiving our sins. We pray that we would never move past the gospel, that as we accumulate more experience with you and follow the Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be more amazed that such grace could be shown to sinners like us, that we might be forgiven, it might be washed, it might be cleansed, it might be delivered from the realms of darkness and been given access into the realms of light. We pray that we would love the gospel 
and that that would regulate and control our attitudes and our minds and our hearts day in and day out, that we might live in ongoing thanksgiving for what you have accomplished for us. We pray these things because we believe them to be in accord with your will as revealed in the scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.